Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 74 of the Mets Up podcast. Finishing up part two of our Once Upon a Time in Queens series where we go over the 30 for 30 film. Last episode, we did part one. We cut it off right before game one of the NLCS. So that's where we're going to finish off with our review and our thoughts of this really, really good documentary that ESPN did. One of the few things they've done well for baseball in the last 100 years because the stuff that they've been dropping recently is absolutely atrocious. But that's what we're doing this episode. There's still no Mets baseball to talk about. The next episodes after this should be more exciting if you're looking for like current event news type stuff. Um, but right now we want to talk about Once Upon a Time in Queens because we do know that a lot of you guys are excited to hear about this and wrap it up. And uh, we're going to have some fun with it. So make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at MetsUp. If you're uh, listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. Drop us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. Don't forget to tweet us. Drop it in the reviews. Questions for our next episode, which will be a mailbag episode because we still want to answer your guys' questions and be able to get some more interaction with you guys. So make sure you tweet us and review us and give us all your questions that we can answer. And that feels like enough rambling. Uh, Let's bring on James here. Mr. Jeter had no range. How you doing there, James? You're good, man. You know, hanging out February. It's a dry month. So dry, and especially with the lockout. It's about the driest month it's ever been. It's terrible. The only thing getting me through February ever in my life was the Super Bowl, which you kill that one right away. Yep. My own birthday, which is like, you know, take it or leave it. And then the fact that you get like the the rest of the hot stove and the baseball pitchers and catchers. Like that baseball pitchers and catchers report after the Super Bowl ends is such a glimmer of hope in an otherwise barren wasteland of winter sports. It's just some, I'm, I like basketball. I'm not the biggest basketball guy. Seeing those pitchers and catchers reports, like that is the juice. That's what gets me through to March Madness, which after March Madness, you get opening day, and then summer, then you're good, and you're crystal clear till Christmas. Yeah, but right now, uh, we don't get a lot of the, the, the juice coming, because we are not making any movements right now with the lockout. No, we're making reverse movements, and just like the minor lockout update, guess we should be giving it every episode, so why not? The, uh, the, the owners tried to get a, a federal mediator in after not doing anything and not making any actual offers to the players. It was clearly a PR stunt. The players said no. And then we're just still just waiting. Yep, and there's nothing going on. Exciting stuff. Gotta love baseball. Yeah, right. Max Scherzer said he's still working out as if the season's starting on time, and he heads up the Players Union, so that's a good sign. Yeah, he's, he's also a nut job too. But he's hey, a crazy listen, person. Yeah, I'm glad we have Mad Max. Let's talk about Once Upon a Time in Queens because we got nothing else to talk about with actual baseball. So yeah, we ended the last episode with right before game one of the NLCS between the Mets and the Astros, where we know there's a lot of debauchery that's going to happen. Of course, we know how this story ends, but. We also learned a lot about this series. Didn't realize that there was really this like big disdain between the Mets and the Astros like they had. Like I knew there were 
rivals per se because of like both the teams being good and there was the history with fights and all that kind of stuff but I didn't realize that there was a real real hatred between the Mets and the Astros going into the series yeah me neither it was a real blind spot by Mets fandom my dad had always talked about this when talking about 86 but I always like heard him without really internalizing it but there was true disdain. There were a couple players in the Astros who were former Mets, their best two pitchers, Mike Scott and uh, Nolan Ryan. And that team themselves was a very good team who were similar to the Mets, like on the doorstep of a championship. Kevin Mitchell had a great quote. He said that series was swag going against swag. And the entire level of documentary is basically like no other team could match the Mets level of swag. So this is the one team that actually could. So it seems like they kind of struck fear into the Mets a little bit. And no player struck more fear into the 1986 Mets other than Mike Scott. Former New York Met Mike Scott, who stunk, stunk with the Mets. He was horrible. Keith was like, you know, he didn't really have much of a breaking ball. His changeup was so-so. His fastball didn't have a lot of velocity. He was like so boring, bored talking about Mike Scott until he got to that uh, that Astros team and learned a splitter, and apparently that made him an ace, which is something that still happens in baseball, which is funny. Yeah, his splitter was disgusting. Like, that thing was moving. They were showing clips, and I know everything. It's like less frames per second, so pitches actually look filthier because you just don't see the ball move as smoothly. But Mike Scott was just dominating, guys. And I think he didn't did he win the Cy Young this year. Or he won a Cy Young in this time. I don't remember what year he won it, but he was, he was one of the best pitchers in the game. Yeah, Mike Scott did actually win that 1986 Cy Young. And the Mets faced the AL Cy Young winner in the World Series. So the Mets were going up, had to go back-to-back in Cy Young uh, winners. But his Cy Young was a little bit uh, a little bit scoffed at because it seems like Mr. Mike Scott was something of a scuffed ball merchant. Yeah, we, uh, we know the Astros have a little history of cheating, and it seems like it might have gone back even to 86. This is not an Astros thing. This is like just the thing that pitchers would do all the time. Phil Necro used to do it with uh, the knuckleballs. He would scuff it up with a uh, nail file so that he could— Phil Necro or Joe Necro, I don't remember which one it was, but— would scuff it up, and it seems like Mike Scott might have been doing the same thing, or at least the Mets suspected that he was. They suspected it, and they took every single measure as if it was actually happening. The Mets were like collecting balls, they were calling the league office, they were berating the umpire, they were asking the journalists. I think Jeff Perlman, the the person who wrote how the bag uh, the the bad guys won or how the bad guys won. I don't I don't know the name of it. Books, come on. You think I know books? Yeah, I mean, you should, maybe you should, you should crack open a book once in a while. It probably wouldn't hurt. Maybe help your eyes a little bit. But My eyes are great. <laughs> how the bad guys won. He was the journalist for the Mets at the time, and he asked Mike Scott, like, are you, are you doing this? He was like, I'll let the league office answer that question. It was pretty obvious he was doing it. But the problem was that the Mets team was much more concerned with the fact that he was cheating than actually trying to hit him. It seems like he was just completely, like, he completely dominated them mentally just by doing this. And the team literally couldn't even touch the ball. That game won. They lost one to nothing and struck out 14 times behind a great pitch game by Doc Gooden. He literally lived rent-free in their head, to use like the classic Twitter cliche. Mike Scott had real estate in every single Mets hitter's brain. They just could not figure him out. And like you said, game one, he kind of started off the tone of the series of like, yeah, I'm, I'm still dominant and you are still not going to touch me with that one nothing victory, which kind of put the Mets a little bit on their heels. Like that's not something that they were used to being down early like that. Especially a team that was so prolific on offense to have a guy face you and literally just dominate you from beginning to end without any chance for rebuttal. It's, it was probably brutal for this team. It did seem like it got into them. And then you're out there with game two and you need a win because you can't go down 2-0 I think that game, that series did start on the road, though. Yeah, because the World Series started at home. That series started on the road. So going, everyone knows the series doesn't start until the home team loses the game. But you still don't want to go down 2-0 in a playoff series. And Bob Ojeda came out. He was a real low-key clutch performer for this entire 1986 Mets team. He said he pitched game two with what felt like an ice pick in his elbow and couldn't throw the ball at all. And he threw a complete game and won it. That's just something 
you won't ever really hear again. Like these dudes who played then, it was a little bit of a different game, obviously, but like the idea of his elbow was in so much pain and he threw a complete game. You have elbow pain, you get pulled in the first inning. They don't care anymore. Like that just wouldn't allow or wouldn't be allowed to exist anymore. Like I feel like the last time we think about that is Johan throwing the no-hitter when clearly he shouldn't have been out there. But like, you know, his arm fell off in that game. If you even think about last year's postseason, this exact thing did happen to Max Scherzer. And the Dodgers were just so aware of it that his velocity was down, his spin was down, his pitches weren't breaking as much. They were like, you're just not going to pitch because we don't think we have a chance to win. But in 1986, they didn't really care because you're our starter and you're going to start. And if you're starting well, you're going to finish. And Bob Ojeda pitched a very good game and he got the Mets back tied up. And then game three, the Mets came back to Shea Stadium for what was the first playoff home playoff game for the Mets in 13 years. So and crazy. it looked like fucking chaos out there. Yeah, uh, Ron Darling did not look great. He got hit hard early. They were down early. And uh, all signs were pointing to the Astros kind of just socking it to them yet again. Yeah, definitely, especially with Mike Scott looming. I think this, hmm, I didn't put this in the notes, but one of these games was Nolan Ryan. I don't remember if it was game two or game three. Yeah, I'm, I don't remember off the top of my head either. Me neither. But so, you're basically, you're, you're facing two dominant starting pitchers when the Mets team, they were good starters, especially with Doc, but no one really at the level of Mike Scott or Nolan Ryan. You're at a significant disadvantage, and you lose those games early. You, It's going to be hard to claw out against those teams. But that uh, game three, after Ronnie got hit hard, there was a funny story that um, Daryl Strawberry said. when He was like, he had a terrible second half of the season. We mentioned it last episode. He, he had a stretch in August where he was 0 for 45 at Shea Stadium. It's crazy. He was hearing boo birds. He had the voices in his head. He wasn't having a very good summer. And Keith was standing on second base in a big spot. And he's looking at Daryl. And he goes, shoulder in. Shoulder in. He's pointing to him. He's like, bring your shoulder in. Daryl steps out. He's like, oh, all right. And he puts his shoulder in. He just rockets a home run out to right field to tie a game after the Mets were down uh, 4 nothing early. It was that was a pretty cool moment. Again, just shows how much of a leader Keith was for this team and how he was basically, even at like 31 years old, like he was in 1986, just an additional coach on the field. How like how much more cerebral he was than every other player. Well, we hear it even now, like when he's in the booth. Like, granted, Keith's become a little, you know, old man-ish recently, a little more like whiny than normal, but like he knows how to hit. He definitely doesn't understand like the launch angle type stuff of way baseball's played now, but like from a fundamental mechanical point of view. He knows everything that's going wrong. Like, he used to call up Conforto before Conforto, you know, put a nix to that and fix his swing and stuff like that. Like, ev- all these guys want to hear from him because he clearly, he's a little bit of a hitting whisperer. He knows how to fix guys, and he did it with Daryl there live in game, which is crazy, crazy. A live in, ba- in game on the base pass. He didn't, it was a look. It wasn't, he didn't even say anything. There was no conversation had. It was a look and a motion, and then Daryl Strawberry hit a home run. And the Astros did pull back ahead, and just like Daryl in this series, Gary Carter was also slumping, and... Similar to seems like everybody in baseball, the Astros were clowning on him, like basically making fun of him. I remember he hit a hard comebacker that in the 1980s was always a base hit. That that stupid, goofy pitcher with the Rex specs, whose name I left off the notes for some reason, he like looked at Gary Carter and like held the ball and like made fun of him that he kept the ball in front of him. I'm going to get that name real quick because I remember this part too. And my dad, when he came on the screen, my dad was like mad. He's like, I hate that guy. I despise him. I'm like, I don't even know who this dude is. Never even heard of him. But that's like was how we'll probably feel. Charlie like, Kerfeld. Charlie Kerfeld. Yeah, but that's how we're going to feel in like 30 years. when like Brad Hand comes on a documentary about Brad- <laughs> whatever team. I don't know. Brad Hand or like uh, Miguel Rojas or something like that. You're like, oh my God, these guys killed the Mets. I hate these dudes. <laughs> well, like, or Jose Alvarado. That's actually the good one. Yeah, Jose Alvarado's a good one. He'll be somewhere. But yeah, some guys hate the Mets. And he like just cla- It's just funny that Gary Carter was an incredible player, 10-time All-Star, top three in the MVP three times. Everybody just made a joke out of him because he was such like a 
like a try-hard kind of guy. He was a hardo, 100%. Yeah, he was a big hardo. <laughs> we get to the ninth inning, and Wally Backman just drops a bunt down to lead off an inning and get out base. Like, that's hysterical. Psycho. Like, I, I would be, if especially because, like, it just doesn't work now, I feel like, as much as it did back then, which is crazy because, like, they bunted way more back then. But, like, the idea of we need a run, let me bunt is so not what baseball is nowadays. That's insane. No, not at all. And he was, like, so proud of it. He was like, yeah, I had to get on base. What do you think I did? I dropped down a bunt. Like, this guy was <laughs> so nuts. I would listen to an entire documentary that was just Wally Backman and Lane Dykstra talking about baseball. I wouldn't try to, like, internalize any of it, but I just want to hear their thoughts. I want to listen, see their brain. They should They should have a podcast. If you're talking about someone who should start a podcast, Wally Backman and Lenny Dykstra need one. Lenny needs money. I'm sure this is a way he could get money. Start a podcast. I'm sure Wally does too. I don't think Wally's flush. <laughs> you don't think he's rolling in dough? <laughs> no, I don't think the Long Island Ducks managerial job pays particularly well. I'm sure yeah, I'm sure it's seasonal. I don't think it's benefits from the Long Island Ducks. Probably not, no. Uh, and then just to stick with the, the future great podcast duo, Lenny Dykstra hit an insane walk-off home run right after this. And this is when the legend was Lenny was born. Basically still as a rookie who's just sweeping the league. And he, he was describing the home run afterwards. He said, like, man, I've never I've never felt this good in my life, man. I've, I was so clutch. I felt so happy for me and my teammates. This was, like, surreal. Like, surreal meaning it wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> and then as, as the legend of Lenny Dykstra is, he went immediately with his wife to Peter Luger's afterwards. Walked in for a steak and got a standing ovation from the from the crowd there. Great A choice by Lenny Dykstra, by the way. Best steakhouse in the city. And also, I mean, it's a, probably it's probably not the best steakhouse in the city. Oh, I think. It, it is. You're foolish if you there's think simply, otherwise. There's simply no way that's true. But that's all. It's also just another added benefit of having these games during the daytime. Like this game was over in the evening. Lenny could have a nice that's, dinner afterwards. That's yeah. That's yeah. It's crazy because like when you said that at first, like in my head, I'm like. After the game, like what time was it? Peter Lewis doesn't stay open that late, but yeah, day games. It's like yeah, these highlights are all idea. in the light, and this is October, so it's you know New York is starting to get darker earlier. It was light during all of these highlights from this game, the documentary. Which, yeah, they should do more of that. One one once in a while, a playoff day game. Yeah, I mean, I think the division series gets it, and if we bring back this wild card round of like six teams, then maybe then. But yeah, a day game baseball, I couldn't imagine it. A walk-off homer in the day game, you could go out that night? We'd be, we'd be having a ball. Just like the Mets, I'm sure they went out that night. Which, you know, maybe played a little bit into game four. Yeah, because game four they had Mike Scott back on the mound. Again, the Mets just counted themselves out against Mike Scott. It seems like they were much more concerned with him cheating than trying to actually hit him. They were, this entire game, collecting the baseballs that came off the field to try and prove the scuff. And they collected 20 of them and sent them to the league office in like a satchel, I guess, or some shit like that but they he crushed them again and they had they were just completely out of whack and it's funny when they were like panning around talking about these scuff balls during this game they showed tim tuffle bobby ojeda and i think even sid fernandez and all of them pulled a scuffed mike scott ball out of their trophy case that they kept yeah. in like plastic ceiling they're like no look at it look at the cross edge there's a scuff on here i was like what the fuck yeah. how do you even how do you even do that so you bring in like a i'll tell you it's sandpaper right sandpaper in the glove sandpaper in the glove um people did nail files and stuff but i think the thing with mike scott was sandpaper and like they went out and checked them too a couple times didn't they and they never found anything i'm pretty sure that was the case as well i'm sure also a lot of the people in the league were pretty against the mets i'm sure they didn't want the mets to win like they would have done anything they could to not have the mets in the world series a team of known drug addicts who were defiant to the league and picked fights like this is this is a no-brainer to keep this team out of the world series little did they know what was going to happen after this series (laughs) jesus christ yeah but now again going game by game here game five was doc Gooden versus nolan ryan and something that seems to be one of the better baseball games like played, especially in this era 
It's funny, Nolan Ryan retired the first Mets he faced. So, again, coming off a game getting dominated by Mike Scott, first four innings of Game 5 of the playoffs, tied 2-2, you can't get a hit. I could only imagine like how downtrodden this Mets team were. Down one nothing. Daryl Strawberry finally broke that uh, hitless streak with a solo home run. And this game went all the way into the 10th inning, still tied 1-1. And Doc Gooden pitched all 10 of those innings. That's like, that to me... We talk about, like, I feel like the moment for Mets fans nowadays is, like, when Harvey came out to pitch the ninth, even though it ended poorly. But, like, that's Harvey came to pitch the ninth. Doc Gooden pitched the tenth? Like, that's nuts. And it still wasn't even the end of the game. <laughs> yeah, there was still plenty of game left. Like, there are, like, nine or ten individual things that happened in this series that will literally never, ever happen again in the history of baseball between this guy pitching ten innings, the obvious sandpapering of a baseball. The Wally Backman leadoff bunt. The way that game six ended, we'll get to that. The way that even in game six, we'll also talk about that. But uh, David Johns sent Lenny Dykstra up to pinch hit as a lefty against a lefty. This shit just never happened. This was such a different game. It's kind of cool to watch a documentary like this and like go into a time machine and like, see the way it was. And you can also kind of see why people who fell in love with the game during this time might have such a problem with how it's played now. Because it really was a lot of like feel and a lot of gut decisions and a lot more like pure per se that the way they were playing where now everything's like a very calculated decision and you're doing what's gonna you know give your team the best possible outcome based on the numbers where before you're like Lane Dykstra's hot he's gonna hit today yeah it was just more opportunity for chaos and everyone loves chaos especially in sport because we're watching sport as an escape and that seeing chaos there it's like oh anything can happen that's the way people want to feel about their own lives yeah and this game was chaos <laughs> this game was chaos that stupid nerd came back in to pitch a game what's his name again Charlie Kerfield. Charlie Kerfield. And he intentionally walked uh, Keith to get to Gary Carter, who was 1-for-21 in that series. And he came up, the man on second, and hit a base hit up the middle. It finally got through Kerfeld's freaking legs. He went to first base, he pointed at him, he laughed at him, and the Mets had their second walk-off in three games. Second of the entire series. Couldn't handle that. Couldn't handle that right now. I would die. I would, I would descend. But also, it would be an incredible moment. I would be, be high on life. So high. I mean, even just the Mets being in the NLCS, I'd be incredibly high on life. And it happened the last time I was very high on life, but it was such like a non-series. that You didn't even really feel it, you know? Yeah, it was a little different. Like the Mets beat the Cubs, like it dominated them for four consecutive games. They're like, all right, see you later. Let's figure out the next round. This yeah, was like the World Series. This was insane back and forth baseball against a team you hated, against a worthy foe. Like, and you really fought, felt all that bubble over in game six when Bobby Ojeda, Mr. Ice Pick Elbow, was trying to get back on the mound. And he said he woke up the morning of game six. For some reason, the Mets were still in New York, which I, I, don't, I didn't like that at all. That kind of gave me some stress. Or maybe it was the day before, but they, they didn't really uh, talk about the timeline that well. And he just couldn't, he couldn't feel it. And he needed like a very high-powered uh, painkiller to say he had to pitch that game. And I forgot exactly what it was called. But he said he was going to pitch this game no matter what unless his arm fell off. So that morning, to get that painkiller, he took a bus down to Washington, D.C. Like, for, I don't even, I guess a football doctor, maybe? I don't know where, why this special doctor is in Washington, D.C., but that's a sketchy thing in its own right. He got the shot, hopped a plane back to New York, and then traveled with the team back to Houston. That's dedication right there. That's, psych- that's psychopath behavior. I know all these guys were psychopaths, but that's real psychopath behavior. He took a bus and two planes in one day. He woke up in New York, went to D.C., came back, and then flew to Houston. And I guess like it makes sense that this ride. was the day before, because then he tried to warm up the next day, so he felt like shit, and there were sandbags in his arm, which <laughs> sounds rough. Sounds horrible. Have you ever carried sandbags? Yeah, it's tough. Incredibly heavy. Shockingly heavy. They keep the basketball hoop down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> felt like that on his arm, and he had to pitch? Yeah, then he gave up three runs in the first inning and it looked like, ah, shit, here we go again, especially with uh, Mike Scott looming for Game 7. But when Rick Aguilera got warmed in the bullpen, Bobby Ojeda settled down and he just gutted out four zeros to get 
through five innings only giving up three runs but that's that's a modern baseball move that's something you yes. see today oh 100 percent. yeah just really really gutting it up and then uh to help clean up that outing for sure he he, he stepped up bob ojeda stepped up big time no he did that was he was kind of one of the uh the unsung heroes of this team the many there are because we know about the stars the keith the doc the daryl Gary Carter, of course, but Bobby Ojeda and a guy who also did this sim- something similar in the World Series Game 7, Sid Fernandez. This pitching depth is something that uh, I hope the modern Mets realize and take something from. Incredibly important. I mean, look at all the teams that have been winning recently. What do they all seem to have? Pitching depth. It's something you need to be successful. Dodgers had nine starting pitchers to start last season. They ended the, World Se- they ended the NLCS with like two and a half. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. After acquiring Max Scherzer. Yeah, after getting with the top three pitcher in baseball, but... Regardless, down 3 nothing going into the ninth, and then Lenny goes up in the ninth inning, lefty-lefty, as we just talked about, triple in the gap. Keith had a big at-bath in the ninth. Like, everything was going right for this team in the ninth inning. Yeah, Keith had another one of those moments where he said he, like, wasn't confident. He couldn't—he didn't know what to do. He wasn't feeling himself. And he called his brother on—he said a payphone in the clubhouse before the at-bat, and he gave him the confidence. He said, you got it. You can hit it. You're swinging it well. He was like, yeah, you're right. I am swinging it well. Like, as as this larger-than-life character Keith was, he had such a fragile ego. It's kind of hilarious. So he had to, like, call his family in between his at-bats to give himself the confidence. And he ripped a double. And then uh, and then uh, Mets had a little rally, a couple hits here and there. And then eventually Ray Knight hit a sacrifice fly to score their third run in the ninth inning, tie the ball game. And then it whoosh, went into an extra inning affair. That This is something that a lot of people have called one of the greatest games ever played. Yeah, it was a, uh, a deep run. They w- played, what, 16, 16 innings, I think it was? I believe it was 16 innings. And this was a game also, like the last few games, were happening during the day. So a big part of this documentary now was about all these people at work in New York, because it was happening between 2 and like 5 o'clock, either stopping in front of storefronts or running transistor radios in the office or having these little tiny televisions that they used to have in the old-time days, just like huddled in front because... It's a World Series birth on the line here. And it's the middle of the fucking day on a Wednesday or whatever it was. Could you imagine being at work or if you're a kid being at school and this was happening and you just couldn't do anything about it? That's torture. Yeah, because you don't have the internet. You don't even have have a phone. You just have to sit there and wonder what's going on in the Mets game. Like the best chance is like listen to a radio maybe. And it's like, oh, God. (laughs) You can't even like sneak listen to a radio. Like I'm sure we've all had moments in our generation of like sneaking sports highlights at school. You know, sitting in high school, you're scrolling on your phone. March Madness, you put the little thing up. College, like working a desk job. The modern times, you can sneak watch anything. You can sit down and watch fucking porn to your nine to five. If you want <laughs> mostly, no one's gonna find out about it. But this, you have no possible way of knowing what's going on in Game Six of the NLCS. You have none. You have nothing. No clue. And then just back to the game. Like they were all very aware again of Mike Scott looming for Game Seven. Roger McDowell, who just fucking crushed five innings of scoreless baseball, starting in the ninth inning. He said, "If I give up a run, we're gonna have to face Mike Scott." Just the fact of a guy who was like something of a closer, a bit of like a fireman stopper back in the day, pitching five innings, another thing that we can never see. Imagine if Edwin Diaz well, was lining up for his fifth inning of work. Nathan Evaldi kind of did that for the Red Sox in the World Series of recent, but he's a starter. Yeah, he's a starter. He's a, he's a workhorse, I would tell, yeah. I'd say. Like, to be fair, though, after Evaldi, well, in that game, Evaldi pitched, what, the day before, didn't he as well or something like that? I think two he days had before. Two days before and then threw seven innings in relief, like, and it ended up, even though they lost that game, winning the Red Sox the World Series because it was so big. Yeah, Roger McDowell actually is going to prove me wrong right now. We threw 128 innings that year. Yeah, but that's like relievers. Then they they did that kind of thing. It was that's still a significant amount of innings. He could he could gut out five. I, I he's, that's still very good, but it means I think it's a little less meaningful. And I thought still though, Is pitching it, five innings in relief for Game Six of the NLCS with the best pitcher in baseball the, having to face him the next day. That's fucking sick. Chuck D again. We're going to talk about him. He has some great quotes. Public Enemy rapper Chuck D. He said he had I had my spleen on the table. 
which like I don't know why spleen is of the... all the organs to pick like my heart <laughs> like maybe you're I drinking spleen. you're talking about your liver my spleen was on the table and then of course we have the 14th inning Mets score a run and they gave it right back gave it right back it's just this game was so tense and the documentary did such a good job of showing like how in the moment in the balance this game was held and you get to the 16th inning the 16th inning in a winner-go-home game for the Houston Astros. Like, fuck, this is insane. Like, even that Nathan Valdi game, that was sick, but that was, what, game two, game three? No, it was, like, game four or five, I think. But no one was at risk of the season being over. Correct, so like, yeah. you're in a situation here where the season could be over. And then uh, Ray Knight put the Mets ahead in the 16th. They wound up scoring three runs. And then they had Jesse Orozco come up, who was gassed. He had either thrown a couple innings in that game or had been overworked in that series. And... The Astros scored two kind of easily. They had a couple base runners on. That's when Keith called his famous mound visit then, and he uh, he told Jesse Roscoe, if you throw another fastball, I'll kill you. <laughs> when, <laughs> Which, like, that's such a great line as well. That should be a shirt. <laughs> that should be a shirt. We should make that into a shirt. If you throw another fastball, I'll kill you. Maybe. <laughs> so if anyone's really good at breaking balls this year in the Mets. And they threw game, three sliders, and the game was over. And that's one. And the city erupts. And then this is where it really gets interesting. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but we'll give another you know quick little rundown of it. The flight back home is honestly almost crazier than this entire game. Yeah, almost the entire series or season as itself. <laughs> Wally Beckham said it was a great moment in the history of aviation. <laughs> Which that's a great quote as <laughs> well. A great quote. It's incredible. He is chock full of good quotes in this well, thing. Like, and tearing down seats, doing copious amounts of drugs, the drinking, the women. Like this was just a concoction for disaster. The food fight. Yeah, the food fight. Like they destroyed this plane. And also, like we know about this from the uh, from a previous episode, reading Jeff Perlman's uh, book, and then Jeff Perlman was actually the only guy who was talking about it in the doc. Every single player in this team wouldn't really say anything about it. Like Kevin Mitchell was like, "Ah, oh, it was crazy." Sid Fernandez was like, "That was a scene." Lane Dexter was like, "Oh, bro, we we're doing cocaine in this bathroom stall." But no one was actually going to describe anything. They were just like, "We had an endless stream of alcohol. Everybody had a good time." And then the shots of them coming off that plane. <laughs> Fucking hysterical. All the guys are wearing, like, blazers and T-shirts, like, hanging on to their wives, their wives hanging on to them. It's a fucking legendary scene. That was, uh, to be a fly on the wall there would have been so incredible. I, I, would not, I don't even want, would want to be on the plane. That would be scary. Well, yeah, because, like, I think you'd be, like, worried about, like, well, maybe we'll distract the pilot and this thing could go down <laughs> at any moment. That's not, I think it's actually a good point. That's pretty impressive on that pilot to not get distracted, to continue flying a plane. Knowing that everything was going on back there. <laughs> at the aftermath of the plane every single player had a different number for how fucked up the plane was i heard like 1000 2000 5000 10000 no one actually knew it's all wise tale it's all folklore cuz frank cashin thought these players had to be professional so you know this and that and they weren't playing a dime uh Davey had the famous Davey had the famous quote we're going to make them enough money next four games anyway so fuck them and then getting ready for a world series that the mets were very clearly hung over to start yeah, they're super hungover, and this is going to lead us right into the World Series now against the Boston Red Sox that had a pretty unbelievably good team. Like, the Mets were good. The Red Sox have, like, Hall of Famers and great players. Yeah, the team Sneaky had four Hall of Famers, right? Yeah, well, Clemens isn't a Hall of Famer, but you got True. Wade Boggs. Hall of Fame quality. Yeah, Hall of Fame quality. Wade Boggs, Jim Rice, Dwight Evans, and Don Baylor, who are all very, very, very good players. And Roger is Clemens, Evans in the Hall of Fame? Uh, no, Dwight Evans isn't, but he's like one of those, he's probably in the same class of like, you know, our Daryls and Keith kind of thing, like yeah, very, yeah. very good players. But that Red Sox team was super strong and Roger Clemens was a big part of it. 
Yeah, Roger Clemens was probably the best pitcher in baseball besides Mike Scott at this time. He won the Cy Young that year. It's like in his mid twenties, so he was still a very young pitcher, even early twenties. Wade Box at three sixty in nineteen eighty six, like three sixty. Like this, this, this is one of the best teams of baseball. Bill Burr also made a guest appearance here. Yeah, love which Bill is uh, pretty funny. Fun fact: I'm pretty sure Tom Seaver was on this Red Sox team during the season and did he not was. make the postseason roster. Which he thank God, could you imagine? Yeah, I was always wondering. And I asked my dad this over the weekend. He couldn't confirm or deny whether or not Tom Seaver was in the dugout during Game 6. I, 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 I don't even have a clue. Right? Like, I'm assuming he would have been. If he was on the roster as Tom Seaver, what else is he going to do in October? He's not going to sit there for the World Series in the dugout with his yeah. teammates. But, like, I don't know. Because I know modern times, a lot of the guys not on the roster still hang around. That, that playoff dugout would be, like, 50 guys deep. But that's always interesting. I couldn't even imagine. Why it hasn't even been more publicized, the fact that Tom Seaver could have watched the Mets celebrate the World Series, like, in Shea Stadium. But we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Bottom line, Mets went down 0-2 at home. Doc got crushed again. And it seemed like this team, without their uh, valiant ace, was looking pretty mortal and were behind the eight ball. Going to Boston for three games down 0-2. Yeah, it was not a great start. Like you said, the hangover was real, and it showed in their play at the start of the World Series. Like, they, you know, the Miracle Mets is always a thing that's been coined. They pulled off a miracle to win this one as well, as we know. Not just like, you know, the jump forward Bill Buckner thing. Like, the fact that they were down 0-2, that doesn't happen too often to end up winning a series down 0-2. Especially down 0-2. Lost two games at home. The other team has an ace advantage. Like, it seems difficult, but their Red Sox one big Achilles heel was actually pitching depth, and the Mets wound up taking advantage of that. But it was a cool way they started episode four of the doc by showing this World Series from the Red Sox perspective. Because this was a massive World Series to them, too. This was this was their best team they had in the last, like, 40 years of the franchise. 30 years, I guess, basically since those strong Ted Williams teams. So they, they were really pining to break a curse, and it felt like they were in a good shot to do it. Up 2-0 with three games at home. Yeah. I mean, we always forget, like, you know, or we think about with the Red Sox curse that, you know, the 2000s teams, but they had an opportunity, a legit chance to do it a lot earlier with this 86 team. And uh, they they were vibing a little bit to start, but luckily that's kind of woke up a little bit here after these first two games. Yeah, yeah we were talking about how this uh, era of baseball is more about feel and about like attitudes and guys and rather than just like numbers and analytics and uh, Davey. Sensing this team's vibe, needing the newest spark, he he hysterically canceled their workout before Game 3 of the series on an off day, and he canceled their immediate availability. And the team was like, wow, this is amazing. So it felt like a snow day. And, and they jumped out hot. I mean, Lenny Dykstra, leadoff homer, which, man, this dude, was, this dude had quite the playoffs for the Mets. Like, Lenny Dykstra was a player. He was a true difference maker. He only even got on this team because someone hit Mookie Wilson in the face in spring training. <laughs> yeah. And then Mets put up four in the first, and they did not look back. Gary Carter kindly finally got off the schneid and looked like he was a capable baseball player again. Like this was a huge game that Mets needed and whether or not it was the the day off from the media and the workout by Davey Johnson, something was going and it completely turned this Mets team around because then we tied it up again and we went 2-2 in this series. Yeah, two very dominant games to get this game even. You figure you have Doc on the mound, you know, maybe you can get him off here, get your ace, get a lead here, figure things out, but wrong. Doc got crushed again. Say so just felt off. Seems like he was just really in a bad spot this entire World Series. Daryl, too. Daryl was just having a shit series all around. Boston, a racist city, as many of us know, was chanting, Daryl, Daryl. And any chant at that cadence, that'll fuck anybody up. And even if you're on top of the world, that'll screw you up. And then Boston kind of jumped all over them. Now the Mets are down 3-2, needing to win two games at home to finally uh, break break this uh, break this World Series. And then, of course, leads us to Game 6. And we know all about Game 6, but it doesn't get talked about enough how well Bob Ojeda was for this game. He was absolutely locked in. 
Yeah, and again, he still still was pitching with a completely roast beef elbow here. The clubhouse attendant talking about Babu Hida's focus in this game was basically in tears. Yeah. Yeah, he he was like a chubby dude with glasses in this doc. I don't remember his name right now, which I give him credit because he was one of the stars of this show. He was absolutely awestruck recalling Babu Hida's game from 35 years ago. Just couldn't yeah. even couldn't even think about anything else. He was like, Bob, man. He was so locked in, like no one could break his focus that day. And then they cut somehow to George R. R. Martin, the writer of Game of Thrones. Massive a, Mets fan. Massive Mets fan, lived in the city in the 80s. He was talking about like how magical it was to be in the stands for this game too, saying there's two things in life that could really hit your emotions more than a great sporting event. I was like, how the fuck they get this guy in here? The dude creates universes, and he's at the Mets games and living and dying as a Mets fan. That... that Gained a lot of respect for me, George R. R. Martin. Not a big Game of Thrones guy, but, you know, you're a Mets fan now, I might support your, your work. Yeah, I mean, he's still one, at, at worst, one of the most uh, important authors of our generation, but whatever. And even <laughs> as this game was going on, I, I took this note, and I remember it happening in my head, but I don't remember if this was a pregame thing, a midgame thing, or a late-game thing. But a guy in a parachute just popped onto the field. Just out of nowhere. Came out of the Queens, the flushing sky, and landed in the outfield. How the fuck did that happen? That's how you knew something was up. Everything goes on with the Mets. Man in the parachute, he had the black cat against the Cubs. I know it wasn't the World Series, but Mets need a little bit of funky stuff to happen to go their way, and that's kind of this the whole vibe of this Game 6 was a little funky. Yeah, and it was still New York in the 80s, so there was a lot of funkiness going on. Disco was pretty hot back then. Then, But then they get, they're get they still down. Bobo Hita pitched well, but they really couldn't get off the schneid. They were making errors. They were miss-swinging at balls. So I forgot who said this quote, but someone said it was the worst baseball the Mets played that year. It might have been Perlman, actually. That this yeah, World was. Series was the worst baseball the Mets played all year, which is perfect for the way this Mets team lined up because you knew they were just going to have to fuck something up. They were just too brash. They were too arrogant. They were too cocky. Like Something was going to go wrong. And this was seemed like everything culminating in their demise. After all, everything they said, everything they've done, it was all seemed like it was about to be for nothing. But uh, luckily, the Red Sox yanked Clemens after seven for kind of seemingly no reason. And in came Calvin Schiraldi, the most scorned man on the face of the earth, the most salty man, and uh, comes into the game. And what do you know? Mets tie it up real quick, 3-3. And you start to see why Calvin Schiraldi's just a little upset about what happened. Yeah, because you can't really blame Calvin Chiraldi's because he didn't put himself in the game. John McNamara, the manager of the Red Sox, no real old-timey guy, he seemed to fuck them, his own team every chance he could. And then after the Red Sox scored too quickly in the top of the 10th inning to really seem like step on the Mets' throat, he decided for some reason to leave first baseman, incredible first baseman, with a hell of a career. This guy's better ball player has ever gotten credit for, Bill Buckner, in the game. Even though every single game of that series, almost every single game of that postseason, he had taken Bill Buckner out before the last inning for a defensive replacement because the guy had no knees. He couldn't play. We see the Mets do the teams of baseball do that all the time. You take a guy out. J.D. Davis, I pray the guy never plays a ninth inning at third base this coming season. I don't care who else on the roster, but can't be J.D. Davis playing playing the field in ninth inning with a lead. And they uh, apparently a couple guys in the team got in his face for it. Like, what are you doing? What are you leaving Bill in the game for? This is a tight game. Like, we can't risk anything. And McNamara said he wanted to win this one with his guys on the field. And boy, oh boy, those famous last words. Yeah, the, uh, couldn't <laughs> foreshadowing much because uh, there was no winning that went on in this field. Of course, we know what ends up happening at the end. But this inning started off pretty interesting as well. We got Wally Backman, who uh, got out to start off the inning. The Mets were down with one out real quick, and they still kept pushing. Yep, and then Keith Hernandez came up, and he also got out. So now Mets have two out and nobody on, down two runs in Game 6 of the World Series. And in, during this at-bat, walking up to the plate, leaving after a nice fly out, Keith looked in the dugout and he saw, again, Keith knows his everything, that Roger Clemens was clean-shaven. 
but he knows from facing Roger in the series and just knowing Roger as a player that Roger Clemens used to never shave in between his starts. He used to shave the day after. So every time he'd pitch, he'd have a five-day grizzle, as Keith called it. And Keith looked at the dugout, and he saw that Roger Clemens had shaved within the last inning. He was like, this fucking guy. He wanted to be clean for the pictures. This guy wanted to be, look nice for the celebration here, and that did not, did not sit well with Keith. And in that same play, as you notice that Dave Henderson, a very classic uh, clip in baseball lore, he made a little hop when he caught the fly ball. He like kind of showboated it a little bit. And this Red Sox team was completely com- – they they'd won the World Series. They were already won the World Series. And it seemed like uh, it did piss some guys off here. Poked a sleeping bear. Yeah, it really pissed Keith off because he took off his uniform. He sat in Davey's, uh, in Davey's office after that. And he's something he said he's still not proud of. But apparently back in that clubhouse, it was kind of a wild scene. People were drinking beers, smoking cigarettes, taking their jerseys off, just kind of lamenting the fact that they had blown this incredible thing. Yep, And on the other side of that, the Red Sox clubhouse, the media was getting completely ready for the celebration. They covered the lockers. They had the shirts and hats ready. The, the carts of booze were in there. Because when you're the home team, you got to supply the booze. So yep. that same clubhouse attendant, who was our star, he was like, oh, this was hell, man. I had to get all this shit ready, all the World Championship stuff. Get the champagne ready in our building. I hated it. And then Gary Carter steps up to the plate. Hated making the last out. We talked about how much of a hard out Gary Carter was and made sense because, again, he did not want to be that guy to make the last out for the Red Sox to win the World Series. And they even flashed the Red Sox, uh, congratulations to the Red Sox, across the scoreboard briefly, a little prematurely. Weird also at Shea Stadium. That's the most effective reverse hex has ever been done in human history. Whoever that guy is, we need his vibes at City Field next year. Yeah, right? They should have interviewed him. Who's working the scoreboard? Who reverse hex the Red Sox? Second, congratulations on the World Series championship. Damn. Gary went on to rope a single, and there mm-hmm. was hope. Yes, and every single person went up to the first base coach, uh, Billy Robinson, gave him the two-finger tap and was like, not making the last out. Yes, not making the last out. I'm not making the last fucking out was actually what they were all saying, uh, which is funny. And then... Next, next batter, they, uh, hmm, I don't remember who he was pinch hit for, but they announced Kevin Mitchell as a pinch hitter, and he was shocked because this era of baseball, rookies don't come up to pinch hit in game six of the World Series with the, uh, with the game on the line. He was one of these guys in the dugout, in the clubhouse without his jersey on. So the, the, the attendant ran in and was like, Kevin, you're up. He was like, what? He had to put his jersey back on, zip up his pants, get warm really quickly, probably put out his fucking cigarette, kill his beer. And he came up there facing his old, uh, his old roommate, uh, Calvin Schiraldi, they used to live together in A-ball. And apparently, Schiraldi being the kind of the hand bone he was, he always used to tell Kevin Mitchell how he'd get him out. We'd gr- grill him with uh, fastballs in and then give him slathers outside. And Kevin Mitchell said he kind of recalled it, but he never thought it would actually be true. And the first pitch was a fastball in. He was like, holy shit, he's going to throw me a slather outside. <laughs> and he threw him a slather outside. He just popped it right over second baseman's head, roped a nice easy single. And again, not making the last fucking out. No, and then they continued to leave Schiraldi in, which, like, didn't make sense because, like, the dude clearly didn't have it. It's not like he was pitching great and just got unlucky. Like, he was kind of the only reason they were still in this game. It's also not like he was a particularly great pitcher even at that. He seems to just be a, a guy, a relief pitcher in the A's, which is not someone who was a failed starter. But, boy, was he f- he was so bitter. He's so upset about what happened. Granted, I would be, too. It's probably, like, yeah, one of the most, like, down moments for his career outside of originally being traded from this Mets team. But, like, whew, this documentary, I honestly don't know if I've ever seen someone as bitter as Calvin Giraldi. No, me neither. He was like, one of the stars, one of the stars. And then Keith had another one of the best quotes of this episode. It's something that all Mets fans, all real sports fans, if you're a real fan, you feel this. When you're sitting somewhere, you're doing something, and things start to go well, you can't move. You're not going anywhere. Keith was like, this chair has hits. I got to stay in the clubhouse because this chair has hits. I had a friend in college, sophomore year when the Mets made the run. He came to our house when they lost to the Red Sox and like hung out, watched, or not lost to the Red Sox, lost to the Dodgers. He was a Red Sox fan. When they lost in the DS, 
And I told him he was not allowed to come over the next day. Like we had like an open door thing. Like you just kind of come over when you want. We'll all be hanging out watching. I texted him. I was like, you can't come to the next. You can't come tomorrow. Like there's a big game. You can't be here. They lost. Like I'm not doing that again. <laughs> and I felt horrible. But you got to do what you got to do to win games. I had something super dissimilar happen to me in the 2015 run. What, uh, I met through a friend of a friend, a dude at the bar. We had a great time watching. The Mets pulled out a crazy game in game one against the Dodgers. I think uh, Dave Wright had a clutch hit. There was The Mets won like miraculously sitting away. I, I told my friend Ryan at the time. I didn't really know him. I was like, we got to watch all these games together now. The Mets fucking won a playoff game. He's become one of the best friends of my life. Yeah. <laughs> so just because of the Mets. Superstition is very real. It's key. And then back to the game. Uh, Ray Knight had a tough at bat, a little two strike single, scored a run. Uh, Kevin Mitchell wound up at third base, and again, two finger tap at first base, not making the last fucking out. And then once the Mets scored the run, everyone kind of looked around and were like, all right, we can actually do this now. Gary Carter immediately, because he scored that run, got in the dugout, sat down, and put his shin guards on. That's a big And every move. single guy was like, that was big. Now we believed. If Gary thinks we're having another inning, we're going to have another fucking inning. That's a big, that's a move. As a former catcher, put on the shin guards. And when your team's down, it's like, oh, we got this. There's, that's big balls right there. That's big balls. Team leader. That's why you got to have a good catcher. Good catcher. Yes. Hardo. Finally, after giving up a run, John McNamara pulls uh, Calvin Schiraldi out of the game. And they bring in Bob Stanley, who, as Bill Burr said, looked like he couldn't even do one sit-up. <laughs> He was like, he had scrawny shoulders and a big belly. He couldn't do anything. Why is this guy your closer in the World Series? No, it didn't instill any confidence. I love Bob, Bill Burr. He's awesome. Yeah, Bill Burr is hysterical. Might see him in the summer. Yes, we might. And then Mookie comes up, and he had that insane at-bat where he just would not go down, not like a center fielder that we similarly saw later on in our lives. We don't even mention that much more. But an incredible at-bat. Fouled off, how many pitches? What, he fouled off like 10 pitches or something like that? I think it was like 12 or 13 because he fouled off a certain amount, and then eventually Bob Stanley threw a ball behind him. Kevin Mitchell was standing on third base. He comes home. Now it's a tie game. Now you can do whatever the fuck you want. Place goes insane. Place goes wild. Imagine imagine the tying run of a World Series game on elimination is from a wild pitch. After 10 pitches of a bat, 10 straight foul balls. That's a thrilling, thrilling at bat. And then, of course, the pressure's off. You, you can't lose now. The game is at least going to the next inning. And he just kept fouling more balls off. You can't get more balls, more balls, more balls. And everyone knows how that at bat ended. Right through dribbler legs. Up the line, yeah. They did a great job of shooting this, too, in the dock. They had, like, different angles. They showed more of Mookie running, more of Ray Knight rounding second, and then eventually they showed the one angle from Bill Buckner behind him, and the ball just very narrowly skipping behind his glove. And then Ray Knight said, he felt, I felt like I was on a magic carpet <laughs> rounded third base coming in from second because he got there in the wild pitch to score in that dribbler. And then they all show, like, the mosh pit home plate. Gary Carter is moshing at home plate in full catcher's gear, chest protector and everything, which, again, fuck yeah, Gary Carter. Gave instilled confidence to everybody. I was going to say, and there was, what, like 15, 16 pitches that could have ended the Mets season. It could have been done. I mean, they were down two outs with their first two batters. They were in a huge hole. And somehow they came out of this with a win, not even just to go to extras, with a win. Like, that's, you understand why us Mets fans love, like, Miracle Mets, the magic. Like, we believe in this stuff. Because look at what we've done in the history of our time. There's not a lot of winning, but when we do, it doesn't make any sense. I've almost had, and also this was extras. This was the 10th inning when this happened. But not even going an inning further. Yeah, yeah. Three runs rather than two. It's just end the game. But I have this theory that the Mets have always not been able to win consistently because every time they have won, it has been like by the graces of God. Like it has been such miraculous. I believe in karma, not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious here. 
Like, the Mets winning their two World Series were so insane that, like, it was going to be a while until it happened again. Like, you get a ball, ball went through a guy's legs. Like, you could wait a little while. You know, that's yeah. fair. I think I will mess with but that was fair. Yeah, we win in spectacular fashion when we do it. It's, it's stories to tell for lifetimes. We have 20 or 30 years of chaos, and then we win a miraculous World Series. Like, that's how I want I would rather that than have of the boring baseball. Than to be, like, competitive and, like, lose in the championship series every year and then, like, win one in ten. Now, give me a crazy story. Give me a give me yeah. one that I'm going to tell my kids, and they're going to tell their kids. I'd hate to be a fan of a team. I don't know what city they play in, but who just, you know, go to the championship series here and there. You win one out of ten rings. You know, it wouldn't be that fun the last yeah. decade. Ugh, gross. Gr- imagine what a great story they have. Uh, we won Ooh. another one. Wow. <laughs> fun. All right. And then, and then just to mention quickly, the hilarious scenes of that. Because now you have moments to clear this press, uh, this press, uh, gather locker room out. Because you had, what, six pitches in between the Mets being down by one, the Mets winning the game, and after everything was completely set up, you had to pull down plastic, take away hats, take away shirts, roll out the boost carts, and you cannot even, you could not for a moment allow one thing to be in there for when the Red Sox got back. And luckily they did. That was a good job by that press team. Look, everything would look pretty good. Yeah, if I was a player and I saw that stuff, I would destroy it. It would be... I would I would punch somebody in the face. Probably yeah. <laughs> probably that press attendant who, who, who was crying, telling the tale. That poor guy. And then now we have Game 7, which, like... How do you even play Game 7 after that last game? Like, it almost feels like the Mets should have been let down. They shouldn't have won Game 7. And it's funny, because I feel like if you ask most Mets fans, and I was like this while I was still, like, a, a child, you would have thought they won the World Series on that Bill Buckner play. Like, I'm yeah. sure even today, you ask a Mets fan who's under the age of 25, I'm sure, like, at least 50% of them think that's how the World Series ended. Oh, I could I could believe that. I, I bet you there's a lot of casual... I would say the casual Mets fans. You know, if you're a diehard, you're going to games... I doubt, but like the casual Met fan, check the box score every once in a while. Ah, they're in second place. All right. I guarantee you that, yeah, that 50% of them would probably think that the Mets won the World Series that night. Definitely. And even more of a blue ball, the original Game 7 that was supposed to be that Sunday was rained out. I, like, I don't even remember a playoff game getting rained out, ever. I shit myself. And my dad tells a funny story because he was taking, uh, he was in night school at the time, and he was really jacked up to watch Game 7 on a Sunday. And then... <laughs> Game 7 ended up being on a Monday. He had class. He was like, what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> Got to miss that class. Yeah, it's a, that's a must-miss situation. And then uh, Ronnie Darling came out here to pitch again. He had a bad playoffs. Red Sox jumped all over him, which got a lot of credit to the Red Sox for battling early after that ridiculous loss. Like, it shows a lot of uh, guile from that team, guile that they would eventually show not to have. But, you know, good for them. And Ronnie actually got knocked out of his game in the fourth inning. So this was twice in two series that Ronnie basically blew a very important game. And it's kind of crazy. The Mets got nothing from their two best pitchers in a World Series and still found themselves in this position. And Sid Fernandez, an unsung hero of this team, 200 strikeouts in the year, which I mean, a hell of a lot of strikeouts in 1986. He came in, he calmed everything down, and gutted out multiple very strong innings to keep the Mets in it, to keep everybody contained. As a baseball player, the one thing that all our coaches used to just instill to our head, like one of those lame cliches, right? You can't let a team hang around. And Sid Fernandez kept the Mets hanging around because that's dangerous. You keep within striking distance, all it takes is a couple hits and everything can change. You got to bury a team when you got a chance. That's why I like those like shutdown innings after putting up like three or four or so big and the Mets just hung around until they were able to get it going and Keith Hernandez was a big part of that. Yep, Keith Hernandez got a big uh, two-run single with the bases loaded with his brother sitting right behind home plate. So he made that contact, gave him a point before. So again, Keith, got to be nice to Keith. Got to make sure Keith's confident. Gary Carter came up next, blooped a single. And Keith misread the ball, and it's kind of funny. He got thrown out of second base, kind of killed what could have been a massive rally. But still, game was tied 3-3, and now Sid Fernandez is cruising in what's a brand-new ball game with Calvin Schiraldi back in the game, who immediately gives up a big home run to Ray Knight to take the lead. And the Mets eventually go up 6-3, and the Sox score, what, a couple more off of Sid Fernandez a little bit later in the game. Mm -hmm. Then Orozco comes in. 
gets out of big trouble, and the Mets keep the lead going into what, the ninth inning? Yeah, and it was a lead that the Mets would not relinquish. They were only up one at the time, so it was 6-5. And um, Darryl Strawberry came up in the eighth inning, or yeah, the eighth inning, and gay, after he was double-swished out of game six. No one really talks about it, but Darryl Strawberry was taken out of that game, and he was very, very offended that David Johnson did that, and he wasn't wasn't a part of that rally at all. It said it never happened to him in his entire life playing baseball, and he was pissed, and he came up in the eighth, and he hit a big insurance home run to give the Mets a two-run lead, and everyone kind of felt like this was it. It finally happened, and he was pissed at Davey. He didn't really ever embrace him after that. Ray Knight came up to him because he hit behind him in the order. He was like, you got to give Davey a hug. You got to give Davey a hug. But apparently, he just really zapped Daryl Strawberry's confidence and really uh, made him upset that Davey would have done that to him. Really, when it was probably just a baseball decision because he was playing so poorly. Yeah, it ended up being probably a good decision as well. I mean, Daryl was struggling at all, at all times during the year, as we know. We talked about how he, had, he was going through all that mental stuff. It seemed like he was just in a very, very lost place, and it was showing in his play. So, yeah, I can I can completely see how that double switch could have taken him out. But like you said, that home run, that was huge. That was big. The attitude, though, it didn't really seem to recover ever from that. No, yeah. But, again, that's that's a, that's a minor story because now yeah. the Mets are three outs away from winning the World Series. And after the hoopla that happened when the Mets won the uh, – the National League East at home, just when that inning began, some outs started for rolling off the table. Horse cops just came in from the outfield, lining both baselines, just daring the fans to do something stupid. Daring them. I don't know what it is, but something about horse cops is incredibly intimidating. Oh, of course. They could kill you without a gun. It's just, like, so menacing and so intimidating. Like, I even think of this, I don't think they were cops, but even in Elf, when they're, like, riding the horses through Central Park, I'm like, they're the bad guys. They're, they're evil. <laughs> like, there's a menacing feel. Yeah, it's like the old like uh like like the old war scenes. Like you get to see the big commander on the horse. Like it's a little scary, it's a little scary yeah. thing. And again, a horse a horse could just fuck you up, kick you, <laughs> step on you. A horse could annihilate you, and you wouldn't even know. And the cop has plausible deniability. And then of course we have like uh, get ready for this if you don't know about this guys the smoke bomb with two outs left in the game or two outs in the shit. game. I would shit. Yeah, imagine freezing, just pausing the game. Flares. One out to go to win the World Series. Flares. All over the place. They didn't even stop the game for the flares. People were just firing flares in the Shea Stadium sky. That's like some stuff you see in, like, Greek soccer. Not at Shea Stadium. <laughs> this was actual chaos. Like, this entire season was chaos. And with one out, two outs in the ninth inning, the chaos continued. But then Jesse Orozco got the last out, threw the glove up in the air. The legend goes, never comes down. The Mets fucking won the World Series. It's up there in the sky with Bobby Schmurter's hat. I mean, like, it just, we don't know <laughs> if it ever landed. He threw that thing so high. That was, like... New York history. That It's one of the iconic moments of Mets history is that glove fling. And uh, like you said, they won the World Series. Like, they should have, but then they shouldn't have. And then they somehow did. It's just, that's how the Mets always are. Yeah, and just chaos ensued. Celebration of a lifetime. Somehow the Giants were playing Monday Night Football when the Mets clinched the World Series. Like, that, that's bad. That's bad planning. I know there was a rain out. No one expected the series, I guess, to go five, seven games. But holy shit, how could those two things both be on at the same time? There's got to be flex games there. I'd love to see what the uh, what the ratings were for that Giants game on Monday Night Football when the Mets were in Game 7 of the World Series. Fucking Christ. But Ray Knight won the MVP. He was the unsung hero of this team. And later that day or the next morning, they said it happened like very immediately after that uh, he really wanted to come back to the team. And he really wanted a two-year deal because he knew he had two more years in him and he wanted to finish his career with the Mets. And Frank Cashin, literally the day before the World Series parade, was steadfastly only give him a one-year contract. The World Series MVP is one of the leaders of this team. I'm sure it was for, like, a difference of, like, $9,000. That's what <laughs> baseball contracts looked like back then. But, fuck, that really set, set a tone for what would be an awful winter for the Mets. Yeah, he's a very shrewd old man, that Frank Cashin. 
very shrewd. Great word, Frank Asham. Shrewd in a bad way. You could be a good shrewd. Yes. Like, make good decisions, be cunning. But he was not good shrewd. He was just a, he was a mean guy. Then we have Bobby and Keith who were out gallivanting around the town, and they missed the beginning of the parade. It's like, I, honestly, I, I can't blame them. If I was a player, I'm missing the beginning of the parade. There's no way I'm there to start. <laughs> Keith had a wild line, or Bobby O'E had a wild line. I was like, yeah, my, uh, I didn't tell my first wife where I was that night. <laughs> these, two, these guys were fucking crazy people. And they, what did they say? There was 2 million people at the parade? 2.2 million people. They said it was a hurricane of humanity. That sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like also can't happen now in current day situations. I, I think the Mets World Series, something similar happened. Ed Koch, the mayor of New York, was a big Mets fan. It's the Ed Koch, Queensboro Bridge, Queens guy. He was wearing the blue Mets cap. He was really, he seemed like he might have been drunk too. He was freaking out. He was so happy. But no doc at the parade, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. Daryl's yeah. wife showed up with a black eye. I mean, there was still yeah, she some... put her she put her hair over half of her face. Yeah, was pretty, there was uh, still some some stuff going on, especially because Doc not showing up, like being late, different, not showing up. Like there was genuine concern about what was going on with Doc. Definitely, and they go into this very deeply in the documentary about Doc and Daryl specifically from a few years ago. And if any Mets fans like this one hasn't seen that one, they should definitely watch that one because it's a very good Doc. Really, more so about those two guys. Rise and fall, their childhood, their career, blah, after the Mets, a lot of their life since then. But he basically, right after they won the World Series, had some champagne in the clubhouse, called his drug dealer, went to a crack house, got too high, and didn't celebrate at all. He woke up with the parade on television that day. And this team thought, like, maybe he could have possibly OD'd or something. They were, like, that afraid because that's what was going on with Doc at the time. They just both, Doc and Daryl, just felt like both of these guys were never really a part of this team during this year as much as they could have been or should have been. Yeah, and it seemed like once the World Series happened, I mean, it was kind of the, the decline of all these guys a little bit too as well. They were never really the same player, and this Mets team was never really the same after this 86 season too. And then they traded like Kevin Mitchell right after too. Like they were just kind of, they won it, and it seemed like Frank Cash was like, all right, well, that's kind of it. Well, yeah, it's the Mets being cheap as the Mets always were. Well, I'm not going to pay a guy for an increase, a salary increase. I'm just going to get rid of him. And Kevin Mitchell, they kind of had to dump one of Kevin, Doc, or Daryl because Frank Cashman just believed that this many young black men together was a recipe for disaster because it seemed like he might have had a, you know, some, some undertones to a lot of the moves he was making. Gives uh, some credence to some of the things that George Foster was saying. But Lenny Dykstra, who I believe everything Lenny Dykstra says in this in this realm, he said that Kevin Mitchell never, ever smoked or did drugs or drank or did anything. It just like seemed like they wanted to get rid of one of them, and he was the most logical one because his value was as relative height. Yeah, uh, the George Foster comments, eh, maybe he had a point. Yeah, a little bit. And then for Kevin Mitchell, they got Kevin McReynolds, who Kevin for a Kevin, which is kind of funny. They got a new infielder to replace Ray Knight, third baseman. And everything that everyone's always said about Kevin McReynolds, that he was a great player, but it just seemed like he didn't like baseball. He always like used to talk about how much he was looking forward to the end of the year so he could hunt. That's like Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn used to talk about how much he loved fishing and that he only played baseball really because he's like, I'm good at it, but like I just don't really like like it that much. Yeah, Kevin McGrell seemed like more of the same. This Mets team was so baseball-laden. They were so competitive and so freakish that this guy came in just immediately did not really gel. And it was kind of more of the same for the rest of that team that year. I remember Howard Johnson got a prominent role also starting in 1987. He also was a guy who people have said was not didn't have the same type of like emotion in baseball as a lot of other guys did. And they lost two guys in Kevin Mitchell and Ray Knight who were real tough guys, real hard-nosed, really loved the game. And then the 1987 season began. Things immediately everyone knew weren't the same. And then Doc immediately also went to rehab of April of that year, which was something that probably should have been happening before that. Davey, which I can't believe, said he didn't even have an inkling anything like this was going on. Yeah, that's crazy. That's that's insane. Hey, it just kind of seems like they failed this guy, you know? Daryl, too. Doesn't really, uh, I don't know, it's not that cool. And then they had a mediocre season, and then the, the market crash in 1987, it kind of sent New York into a bit of a tizzy. 
The team was good in 88, but they weren't really the same. Keith and Darrell had a couple spats. McDowell and Dykstra were traded to the Phillies that year. Mookie wound up on the Blue Jays. This, all these guys got moved, and it kind of felt like the cheapo Mets, like not paying up for the guys who got them there. And what's even crazier is that they actually should have been in the World Series that year. Like the Mets, like while it didn't have the same field, they still were pretty good, but they yeah. lost in the 88 NLCS against the Dodgers because Mike Sosha, who hit like a career 14 home runs, hit a walk-off home run or hit a go-ahead home run, whatever it was. I think it was go-ahead maybe. And that was like the nail in the coffin that Mike Sosha hit the home run, and that was like kind of the end of these Mets, which is kind of crazy to think about because they came in so hot, and it was just kind of a blip really at the end of the day. Yeah, Keith deteriorated pretty quickly. Daryl wound up in the Dodgers, I believe, the next offseason. And then Frank Cashin, once Doc and uh, Daryl were off the team, had a horrible press release about them saying that those two young men failed the Mets. Which it seems like they might have failed them in a way like yeah, they so definitely didn't do anything to help these guys they were just essentially players on the team yeah it's a terrible terrible way to think about it like you're, you're an organization there you gotta be you gotta be a community you gotta be part of an organization i understand the general manager and billy bean does this pretty well you kind of want to stay removed from a lot of the emotional impact of a team but these were these were two young guys who you developed you would think the mess would have taken a greater interest in their uh in their lives and this is when the, the best scene in this documentary all, they show all these guys in different uniforms. Gary went back to the Expos, said Mookie to the Blue Jays. Kevin Mitchell wins a MVP in the Giants. Doc and Darrell win championships with the Yankees. Doc, there was no hitter with the Yankees. The Don LaGreca rant going over all of it. Who is your forever Met? Yeah. Keith went to the Indians. Mookie was a Blue Jay. That over and over again. It really is true. Like This entire team just disintegrated very quickly, and none of these guys who were the heroes of this team finished their careers out with the Mets. No, which, like, you would have thought, you know, seeing that build up to 86 and then the 86 season, there's no way that this team wouldn't stick together. There's no way that these guys don't finish on a high with the Mets, and literally nobody did. No, it looked like they were going to begin a dynasty, and the entire thing was completely kaput by 1989. Three years later, the roster was in shambles. No similarities whatsoever. Keith was having the issues with his dad, never smoothed it over. Wally Backman, domestic assault. Lenny Dykstra is just a criminal. Like, there's just no yeah, way around Become these. a criminal. Just a criminal. Like, Doc and Daryl, they had their issues. They had their problems. Never really figured it out with the Mets again. And, like, the Mets were kind of it. And then it was done. And then the 90s came around, and the Mets were, like, pretty irrelevant again. Yeah, they were horrific. And it also goes to show that a lot of these guys in this team probably weren't the best the best guys, which kind of goes to, like, I don't know. You, you do what you will. You separate the R from the artist. But this team was just kind of combustible. And while they did win, in miraculous fashion, it ended up combusting. It felt like every single thing that had to go right did go right for the Mets to win. And it might have gotten perceived as like this team was actually really good when maybe they played better than they actually were. It was a lot of small miracles that kind of led the Mets to a World Series, which almost every team, you win a World Series in baseball. You need a couple real things to go right. Look yeah. at the Braves from this last year. Eddie Rosario is the hottest man on earth. Yeah. Like. Tyler Matzik finally learns how to throw a slider. Like they, a lot of things have to happen. They lose Acuna to an ACL tear. Ozuna for the domestic violence thing. Two of their best hitters in their lineup don't play basically for the entire second half of the season, and they somehow got better. Like Charlie Morton breaks his leg in the middle of the World Series. Yeah, like all this stuff happens to every team. It's just what happens afterwards. And for the Mets, nothing happened afterwards. That was it. No, nothing. And the city did kept writhing. They were kind of harping on the like. Uh, the money mania aspect of, of New York at the time, which definitely still exists to this day. We have a lot of friends who are finance obsessed, really care about the, the dollar signs at the end. But yeah, it's just these guys are one and done. And it kind of this docu- documentary closed in a bit of a somber way with Lenny Dykstra 
giving a painkiller-laden monologue about, yeah, that way we fell apart this team, man. It could have been something really special. We couldn't really just do it. We couldn't get over there. Yeah, the fact that Lenny Dykstra is to give the monologue at the end of it, I think, is a perfect way to end it, too, because it's like that's kind of a great like uh, reality check almost for like what the Mets were. Like High-powered, fast, on top of the world, and then just as high as they were, they went super, super low real after it. Like Lenny Dykstra, I don't even know if he knows where he is half the time. No, Lane Dykstra has really become something of a a sad figure over the last decade, decade and a half. Especially yeah. means didn't Lane Dykstra, bizarre, bizarre human being. You know, he lived in Clark for a while by us. Yeah, Clark Linden, he hung around Union County quite a bit. Yeah, he got he got arrested one time with a cocaine possession in Rawway. Yeah, he, on St. George's Avenue. I, another story I got with Lane Dykstra is I don't remember if it's my week at Cooperstown or the other Westfield team or just one of the weeks in Cooperstown. Lane Dykstra's kid was playing and trucked the catcher. And that's Sick. like an immediate ejection from the tournament. You're gone. As if they think it's like on purpose. And Lenny Dykstra apparently like fought with the guys. Like, I'm Lenny fucking Dykstra. Like, <laughs> my kid's playing. And he was right back in the next game. Like, <laughs> he was, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> he got he got shit done, Lenny Dykstra. But uh, sometimes illegally. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, that's that's kind of the way this all ends. Like, the, it's more of what could have been. It got there once. It's kind of similar to the MS 2015 team, you know? Yeah. Everything just fell apart really quickly, and different reasons, of course. I don't know how many guys in that team were doing copious amounts of cocaine, but just <laughs> the fact you look at that rotation, that was the cover of Sports Illustrated, that fa- famous picture in like the steakhouse. Just one guy just, left. Just the one guy left. And it's Jacob deGrom, who probably, honestly, wouldn't have been your bet to be the guy that stays around the longest. No, he'd probably have been the second or third choice. Yeah, so... Very similar to what happened then. Overall, incredible documentary, four-part, which is one of the bigger ones that ESPN has done. Um, Jimmy Kimmel, big executive producer on it. Really, really good job. If you're a Mets fan, highly recommend it, even though you just heard our breakdown of literally everything that happened in it. Go watch it yourself. We we miss some things still. Um, overall, awesome if you're a Mets fan. Must watch. Honestly, if you're a baseball fan, must watch. Definitely. It's kind of a good message to end on here that while this lockout's going on and we are ver- urging everybody to remain positive, you don't freak out until March. We're not freaking out until March with the Messed Up Podcast. March 5th, March 10th. Yeah. It's a good time to just look back at some baseball history. MLB Network is playing old baseball games every single day because legally they cannot show current players in Major League Baseball because they are part of the uh, the league and they're, they're, they have locked out the players as well. So they're showing games from the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s every single night. It's good to click on a game for an inning or two, watch some old baseball, see how see how it's all used to go. YouTube has tons of great old baseball content. Ben Porter shows old baseball videos on his Twitter like what every single day. Yeah, There's a lot of like tweets. super super 70s sports does some hilarious stuff. There's good good baseball history is pretty rich. I don't know if anyone's really like a history nerd like me, maybe you could watch Ken Burns, but that's not for everybody. Yeah, he's a little slow, but it was a little slow. I mean, I, I've watched it a couple times through. So it's incredible stuff. but It's good, yeah. yeah. Baseball history is a good good thing to get into, especially so, this time. So if you had to give it a rating, uh, you know, 1 through 10, what are you giving it? Oh, this doc? Yeah. I'd say probably like a good like 9-2, 9-3. I was in the same range. I was like 9-1. I was like, I think yeah. you can't give it a 10, of course. This is perfect. No. There's no such thing as perfect because then you're only let down from here on out. But this yes. is a must-watch documentary if you're a Mets fan or just a fan of baseball in general. Take time out of it. You could, it's four parts. You could split it up. You could take an hour a day, and you have a week's worth of content to watch. You could have a good week. You could watch one episode a week. Maybe you use your Sunday night, evade your Sunday scaries. It's a good, it's a good thing to watch. It's really useful, and it was really cool to just get that old New York and Mets culture. And uh, that's going to be where we wrap it up, guys. Episode number 74 of the Mets Up Podcast, Once Upon a Time in Queens Part 2. 
we are done. You won't hear us talk about this too much more because there's we literally had basically two hours worth of it, which is almost as long as the actual documentary is. In retrospect, we talked about it quite a bit, uh, but it was fun. We got nothing else to talk about. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're following us on Twitter at MetStuff everywhere. We're doing a giveaway right now for a Brett Beatty card on our Twitter, so go check that out. Make sure you're following us. Tweet us your questions, anything you want to do for a mailbag episode. We're going to be answering those upcoming soon. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range, me at Giraffe Nick Mark, and make sure you give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, all that. Five stars. Drop us a review. Drop us a, rev- a rating. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace out, guys. See you later.